0: Welcome to The Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On The Weekend Edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. When Facebook and our Instagrams and other social media's go out, a lot of times we get really angry. The first thing you think of is I can't uh, spy on my crush, you know, I can't get these funny memes that I'm used to. But what you may not realize is that when Facebook goes out, a whole economy goes with it. There's tons of businesses that advertise on the platform and rely on it for a lot of their business structure. Ashley Carmen, tech reporter for The Verge, joins us to talk about the people who build their businesses on these platforms and how they lose out when Facebook goes offline.
1: Facebook is an ad-based business. It's worth billions of dollars, and its primary way of making money is through ads. So the people that are taking out these ads are often local businesses. I I specifically focused on small businesses, but, I mean, most every company uses Facebook. And so... The reason they're taking out these ads is to either sell something, like if they're retailers, or get clicks on a website, which inevitably they hope to turn into some kind of conversion where they can get a customer out of it. Or perhaps they're using it even for a free thing, but in the hopes of eventually upselling this person, which was one of the people I interviewed for this story. What ends up happening is when this platform, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, not so much, but Facebook and Instagram really go down, these businesses just lost a big part of how they market and hope to make money for the day.
0: Explain to us exactly how this Facebook economy works. The people pay to gain impressions, people pay to gain conversions. There's all sorts of stuff that, that are at play.
1: Facebook has its formal ad service, which is where you can set a budget. Anyone can do it. You can set a budget. You can say what your goal is. You can say impressions, which just means I want 300 people to see this, or I want to get as many eyes on this as possible, or conversions, which is like, I want 400 people to click through my my website. And what Facebook does is actually very interesting because they've kind of set themselves up for situations like this where they only charge advertisers for the results. So they're not going to charge you a baseline and then not actually deliver. They promise to only charge on what they deliver. But what I talked about in my story is how there's kind of this side economy that's built up around influencers so people who are really popular typically on Instagram but they exist for Facebook too where these companies can make side deals with them off the platform it has nothing to do with Facebook's formal program and in those cases I mean you're kind of flying blind only recently have contracts and influencer negotiations become a thing so if you have a formal negotiation and contract you might be able to get your money's worth and get a guaranteed what you want out of that influencer deal. But the person I profiled, Jason Wong, who sells fake eyelashes and also he has various products that he sells, made a deal with an influencer, multiple influencers. And in his case, he made that deal through private DMs. So they didn't have a contract and he's not really sure if he'll be able to get his money back because the influencers technically fulfilled their side of things. They posted about his product, but unfortunately for Jason, no one was online that day. (laughs) Exactly. Nobody saw it,
0: but that's how it is for a lot of businesses, even businesses that aren't particularly relying on direct sales, things like that. They expect to lose money just because they didn't get those clicks. They didn't get the engagement to set up future business.
1: Jason seems like a smart businessman. He talked about how they've diversified how they market. So because he lost that revenue that day, he honestly didn't sound very stressed. I was like, okay, you, you're really zen. Good for you. <laughs> he, he seemed to like not be worried. I mean, it came back, I assume he figures he'll make up the lost revenue somewhere else. But if someone had built their business solely on Facebook and Facebook went down... That's a problem and I heard that from another source that I talked to who mentioned that this whole situation stressed for her that they need to diversify they need to make sure they're not vulnerable to outages because if you put all your eggs in one basket you never know what's going to happen right
0: and even people that are advertising specific events like hey I need you to sign up for this online training class or something, something that is time sensitive. I mean, those people, if you're doing a last minute push, you know, the day before or something, then, and nobody saw it, then you have no signups. You have no people showing up to your events.
1: Yeah. That was a very interesting situation that I actually hadn't really thought about because the beauty of Facebook and Instagram is that, like I said, anyone can access their ad tools. You and I could go on right now and make an advertisement probably for this podcast.
0: Yeah, It's so easy to do.
1: Exactly. And so you have people like this woman I talked to, Candy, who is a wellness coach and she happened to be holding a training the next day after this outage. And she was like, I'm going to put ads out to try to get more people into my training, which is a free training. But for her, she tries to put them on her email list, which then just kind of brings them into her universe where she might be able to sell them products. So like it didn't cost her money in that exact moment, but it cost her potential clients in the future. So it's just very interesting how Facebook money plays out. Out, not just in the immediate, but also in the future. A
0: lot of people are dependent on it. And as you said, really, a whole economy can go down when these platforms are not online. Ashley Carman, tech reporter for The Verge, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: My absolute favorite story of the week is just incredible. It's a story about finding family and living with a new reality that you might have 50 brothers and sisters roaming around in this world. It's a story about Jacoba Ballard, who knew she was a donor conceived kid and wanted to find some of her half siblings who might have had the same donor. Her investigation led her to find some other siblings for sure, but then something more unexpected. All of these siblings that she was finding, everybody pointed to the same man, Donald Klein. Klein was a fertility doctor who was accused of using his own sperm to impregnate women who came to him for artificial insemination treatments. We spoke to Sarah Zhang, she's a writer at The Atlantic. To talk about this crazy story and all these newfound siblings and how they live in this world now that the truth is out. It's a small town where they live, and they're constantly seeing each other unbeknownst to them. So it's just a wild story.
2: When I first started reporting this story, I definitely was like, oh, my God, what a weird story. You know, like, what kind of weirdo would do this? But the more I got into reporting it, the more I understood the history of how donor insemination worked um, (laughs) and the way doctors kept secrets from their patients, the more I was like—
0: Just to to jump on right at this moment, I mean, the first success in artificial artificial insemination had a bunch of lies behind that one also. And and you wrote about it in the article, and it's great. And this this story is not just about Donald Klein. It's about his children also who found each other and have to live with new realities of now that all this has been unearthed. So like I said, it's a great story. But let's start with Donald and what the accusations were against him.
2: Donald Klein was a fertility doctor in Indianapolis. He retired a few years ago. He's in his 80s now. And for a while, he was sort of the fertility doctor in Indianapolis. If you need a fertility treatment, you, that was probably a guy he you went to. And so what happened is that, unbeknownst for all of his patients who were coming to him for donor sperm, and in a lot of these cases, the, uh, the men, uh, the husbands, were infertile, instead of actually getting a donor as he promised, he had said it would be a medical resident. He had apparently been using his own sperm, and we don't know exactly how many biological children he has. He said he did it about 50 times. There are currently 50 people who've been coming through DNA tests that are his biological children. In between publishing the print magazine and like when the like few weeks we put it online, two more people were found. Wow. So we really don't have a good sense of exactly how wide the scope is. And the thing is like all of these kids, a lot of them say still live in Indianapolis. They, you know, have their paths have crossed in weird ways. And then and now they find out they're half siblings.
0: That's one of the weirdest parts of the story is how their paths have crossed throughout the years. I think one of the kids sold one of his half siblings like a lawnmower through a garage sale. And, you know, this was before they knew it was happening. So let's start with the siblings now. Tell us how the kids, about 50 of them now that we know, how they started to find each other and connect the dots that this all happened and that their family, quote unquote, is bigger than they thought.
2: Yeah. So this sort of all started around 2014 with a woman named Jacoba Ballard. Jacoba was someone who she had known since she was a kid that she was, her parents had used a sperm donor. So she knew she was donor conceived. And she was sort of interested in not necessarily finding out who her biological father was, but she was interested in, you know, maybe finding out other half siblings. And she thought she, she told me she thought she'd maybe find one or two. So what she did was that she went to a forum for people who are adoptees or donor conceived. And she knew who her mother's fertility doctor was, Donald Klein, of course. And she met another woman whose mother had gone to the same doctor and who knew another woman who had a sister. So now there were four of them. They thought, oh, you know, why don't we all get tested? You know, who knows? We might be half siblings. So they all take 23 me tests. The test results come back. They are all half sisters. And what's more is that they have four more half siblings on 23andMe. So that's eight half siblings total. And right away, this kind of sets off some alarm bells because Dr. Klein had supposedly told the patients that he used any single donor-only few times, and now there are eight. And he said that they're supposed to be medical residents, but their ages were arranged long enough that it would have been more than any single person would have been a medical resident. So they started doing something that has actually gotten a lot of attention now because of the Golden State Killer, which is using DNA to look for family trees
0: the whole notion of familial DNA and building the family tree profile just to trace everything back as far as you can. And little by little, Jacoba and and her newfound siblings started to realize that everything started pointing to Donald Klein in more ways than one. It was just not a coincidence. And They started contacting all of the other siblings that they found that were part of this, and a lot of them thought it was a scam at first. They're like, "You guys are just crazy! This is not happening!" But everything just snowballed so quickly after that.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine if you got a message from a stranger being like, "Hey, I'm your half sibling," and you know, as far as you know, you had a perfectly normal family. Your father and your mother got married, they had kids. Like, wouldn't you also think that this is kind of crazy? (laughs) Um, And and this leads us, and
0: this leads us to the big first meeting between Donald. and all of these new half-siblings that have found each other. Donald Klein's own son actually set up a meeting with all of them, and it just got so awkward. Donald Klein was trying to quote some Bible verses to them, trying to maybe justify things. Jacoba, for her part specifically, just was not having it.
2: Can you imagine this is kind of like the first family reunion, like the first time you're meeting a biological father. It was kind of interesting little detail about how Klein's son ended up getting in touch kind of just illustrates how small this world is, is that he actually knew Jacoba's priest. He was also Catholic. And I guess he thought that there was a connection there and that, you know, it's actually also his half-sister. And I think they were interested in getting to know each other a little bit or at least just understanding what happened. So Dr. Klein comes to this meeting. Jacoba told me he kind of brought this notepad and he had all these Bible verses on them. And one of them was Jeremiah 1.5, which goes, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And this really kind of pissed her off because she felt like he was trying to use her faith to manipulate her. And this meeting, (laughs) as you can imagine, doesn't go so well. They don't really feel like they got any answers. He kind of admits he used it maybe like nine or 10 times, which, you know, as we now know, Not really the case. Yeah, it was Uh,
0: like almost 50. So it's just ridiculous. Exactly. From this meeting, obviously, emotions are flaring on a lot of different sides. And it just leads us to a lot of big questions that I don't think were ever answered. I'm not really sure what made him do this. He was one of the premier fertility doctors at the time. You know, a lot of people were going to him. And so what would make him do this? And I know that the siblings had a real hard time trying to process this specifically. You know, was it a sexual thing? Was it a religious thing? Was it a power thing?
2: This is the question that everyone has, right? So I I will just uh, say for our listeners that I did try to talk to Dr. Klein and he did not want to talk to me in part because he's also being sued for his actions. So I understand why he didn't want to talk. So, you know, I don't know the single answer. What I will say is that I think if you go back to how donor insemination worked back in the 1980s, it's very different from how it is today. There's like no catalog of frozen sperm you can order online. He actually had to go and find the medical residents and ask them to donate. And because had to use fresh sperm. So the sperm had to be like, you know, within an hour. I uh, had to kind of time it when, when the patient was coming in. It was a lot logistically harder, I <laughs> can imagine, right. to get the sperm than it would be today. And, and some and, of those
0: unknowns are probably the worst parts. You know, the way you're describing the procedure and how he did it, sperm needed to be used within the hour. That lends itself for people to believe that he did go into the next room and get it himself and then come right back to use it on his patients
2: yeah exactly so i spoke to one patient named liz white who the way she told me is when you're going through artificial insemination you have to go whenever you're ovulating which could be on a weekend so she would go in on weekends and he would be the only person there and she would you know get undressed get in a gown sit on the table in stirrups and he would go next door to get the sample and i can't say exactly what he was doing but one's mind can imagine what was going on next door and that Walking through that, walking through those steps, like she really felt violated when she realized that. And she told me she felt like she had been raped.
0: Yeah, she felt like she was raped 15 times. Those were the amount of times that she went to go get treatments from him. And as I said, the unknowns are some of the most difficult parts, uh, how to process it after the truth comes out years later. I mean, her son is like 30-something years old now, and she's having to deal with this.
2: Yeah, he's 36.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about the criminal case that happened against Klein. What were the charges? Because- you couldn't really charge him for rape or anything like that. It was just two counts of obstruction of justice. And then how did that trial specifically end? Because it didn't really seem like he got quite a big punishment at all.
2: This is quite one of the most fascinating things to look at in retrospect is that there is no law that specifically says you cannot use your own sperm in your patient. And so when the prosecutor looked at this case, he realized you know there were no documents left, so you couldn't charge them with deception or fraud. It didn't really quite fit the definitions of rape or assault. And so he he did find this kind of one slam-dunk charge, which is that when Don Klein was first notified of an investigation, he replied saying he had never used his own sperm, so he clearly lied in that case. So he was like, okay, well, I can charge him for felony obstruction of justice, which is a felony. You know, it's not a misdemeanor. Felony is a serious thing. But when he was sentenced, it was something that happened years ago. The judge decided he had to lose his medical license. He had already been retired, so he was not using his medical license. And I think he was ultimately fined about $500, so he was not punished very harshly in the legal sense. But I think it is probably also fair to say, you know, this has been probably pretty rough for his family and for someone who maybe was a really respected doctor who right. probably cared a lot about his reputation. He's he's really lost all of that.
0: And that was the big moral dilemma. I mean, he violated the trust of his patients. As you said, there's no law that says he can't use his own sperm, but it's the trust that you have in your doctor. And this was, you know, in the early stages of how artificial insemination works. Now we have the sperm banks and deep profiles of who the donors are, and you can kind of pick and choose by, you know, occupation and hair color and all that stuff. And that's just not the way it was before. So I want to end with all of this because this is one of the the most interesting parts. And it's one of the weirder parts dealing with the fallout of all this. All these siblings, there's about 50 of them now. And I know some are more vocal and some want to kind of keep it more hidden, but it's kind of a small town-ish feel where, a lot of them still live there. Uh, I think you note in the article uh, somebody was getting a haircut and they said, "Hey, that's Klein's other daughter or something." And so they run into each other all the time, and and just all the stuff that goes through their heads when they when they see each other.
2: On one hand, they're like they're worried because like oh you know like oh my god like we went to college together maybe we could have hooked up or maybe I didn't know it and I hooked that's up with so my sister. That's so weird. Right? Yeah. That's so weird. But now they're also, you know, there are a lot of these people are all there in their you know, mid to late 30s. So they have their own kids. Their kids are getting old enough to date. And I think the thing that you know, really struck me is when they were saying like, wow, like now every time my kid, you know, has an innocent crush or like, chooses a prom day, I'm going to have to think about this.
0: Right. It's just so heavy to even think about that and, and have to really think about it for the rest of your life and your kids' lives is there's 50 of us out here. That's so many people. And the intersections are so crazy. As I said, one of them sold each other... Some Something at a yard sale.
2: <laughs> and I think it was just, like a wagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Just these tiny coincidences are pretty just crazy to come across.
2: Yeah, well, I think it makes sense, right? Like he was sort of like a prominent fertility doctor in, in Indianapolis for a couple of decades. You know, if you were a fairly well-off couple who needed fertility treatment in Indianapolis at that time, you probably went to him. Like, of course, the social circles probably overlapped.
0: And how is it now with a lot of the siblings? I, I saw in your article that they try to do an annual gathering now, almost like a, an extended family gathering. That's the second uh, their second reunion. Yeah, their <laughs> second family reunion so far that they've had, and and I love the. The last line. From afar, it must have looked like any other family reunion, but... When they're hanging out in there, they know the realities of it. What, how is that?
2: Yeah, I know. It's so bizarre, right? I think it is really fascinating how different siblings have reacted differently. And of course, the people who really wanted to talk or people who you know, really wanted to be very involved with their siblings, there are also people who if they were contacted once when they first took a DNA test and they're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Please don't talk to me anymore. And some people, it's become a really part of their lives. They like talk to their sisters and their brothers. They compare how they look. They talk about how they like the same McDonald's orders and have the same wedding dress. So I think there really is a real range of reactions to how people have dealt with finding out they have 50-something half-siblings. This like puts it in a weirdly clinical way, and I don't want it to come across that way, but it's almost kind of like a controlled experiment. You have all these people share 50% of their DNA, but they were raised by different parents. And yeah. it's kind of interesting how they've all turned out differently or like feel. sometimes they feel differently about how they were conceived.
0: It puts a whole new spin on the meaning of family and connections. And as you said, just growing up in different situations and environments. Sarah, it's a great article. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to talk about in the interview right now. So I suggest everybody read it. The Fertility Doctor's Secret, Sarah Zhang, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.